Father, we uh, look forward to today. We look forward to uh, God just sitting at your feet and learning from you. I pray that as we look at this material, God, as you, as you speak to our hearts, that it wouldn't just be an exercise in some kind of intellectual growth, but God, yeah, we need our brains, but Lord, we want it to go down into our hearts. That we would be men and women who honor you with the way we live, with the things we do. So God, we wanna, we wanna get all the distractions out of our minds and, and out of our ways so we can pay attention, so we can hear from you what you have to say for us. And we just pray that you would bless this time and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as we're looking at Thessalonians here, Paul has spent a little bit of time in the beginning of this chapter kind of defending his ministry. It seems like, it seems like some people had crept in to the ministry and began to spread rumors about Paul, began to talk about, well, you know, he had this motive, this wasn't pure, this is what he's doing. So Paul kind of laid all that out and we looked at that. And every time I read something like that, it sort of breaks my heart that as believers, we kind of we tend to eat each other, don't we, at times? We, we get together in little groups and we go, well, if I were king of the jungle, here's what I would do. And, and you know, you're not king of the jungle, so you're not gonna do that. So, but we tend to do those things and we tend to spread some rumors, and then sometimes things get healed, but that thing never stops. But anyway, that's, that was last week, so off on that. Now, what Paul's going to do right now is he's going to talk about the impact and the power that the Word of God has in people's lives. I love especially verse 13. I, I love the way he lays that out, and we need to understand how powerful the Word of God is. I look at my life and God has called me to teach his word, which I count as a tremendous privilege, but I also count it as a huge responsibility because I don't think it's that difficult to mess up what God's saying. And, you know, especially as just a person. And I don't want to mess up what God's saying. So I, I put energy and time. We're going to do the inductive Bible study. And you're going to find out. I know some people, th I know some people have signed up because they think I have the keys to success. And I have some secret to tell them. All you're gonna find out, and I'll, I'll just do it quick, quick so some of you can go scratch your name off. All you're gonna find out is it's a lot of hard work. And it's hard work, and, and I don't have any secret. I don't have any kind of divine, like, like inspiration that I just look at the word and go, ooh. So listen, but here's the thing. If we stay with this word, Here's what I know. We're giving out the word of God. And people are getting the word of God. And here's what I definitely know. It's the word of God that changes lives. It's not anything else. It's his word that comes. And I think, listen, I think it should be an intellectual thing, but I also think it should be emotional. I think our relationship with God should be emotional. I don't think it should be some dry, like, things, you know. Uh, you know I have a relationship with my wife, and I don't, I don't come home and say, hey, could you get our marriage license out to make sure that it's all good and we're following the directions? And there's emotion involved, right? And it should be the same way with the Lord, but... Having said that, his word has to get in us because his word is the revelation of who he is and it tells us who he is. So look at verse 13 and if you haven't found out yet, we're only gonna do one verse today. So 
Anyway, verse 13, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you, when you uh, received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it or accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now, I, listen, man, there's a ton just in that one verse. As Paul is pouring out his heart, and this time, as I'm, as I'm studying and as I'm going through Thessalonians, especially 1 Thessalonians, I'm getting the idea that Paul had some kind of special bond. I'm not saying he's playing favorites and this was his favorite church, like this is my favorite service. But listen, I don't, I don't think he's necessarily doing that, but he had this bond with these guys and he had only been with them a short time, a couple months. But did you hear what he says? Listen, listen to what he says. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. He thanks God continually for that fellowship of believers. I don't think they were a huge mega church. I think I mean, they got this little core group of believers. And here's what Paul says, man. I'm always thanking God for you guys. So there's something going on. I think something special going on in Thessalonica with the believers. And his reason for thanking God is how they treated the word of God. Listen to what he says, because there's a couple things I think we should underline, and, and then we're gonna kind of look at the word. But listen to what he says. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. So first, listen, first they received it. And you have to be open, you have to be willing to receive it. But that's not enough, listen, we're not just like drones that we just take it in and okay, I received it. But listen to what he says, first of all, you received the word of God and then he says this, he says, and you welcomed it or accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You see, they didn't just receive it, they didn't just sit and hear something, but they also accepted it. And they didn't just say, yeah, I like what he said. Here's what they did. They said, yeah, this is, here's what we know. This is God's word. And this is God's word given to us. And I love that whole idea. Listen, they received it, and then they accepted it as God's word. And then he says, listen, he says, as you do that, here's what happens which also effectively works in you who believe. What changes our life? The word of God. What is the thing that will make us a better person? The word of God. What is the thing that's going to mature us in our Christian walk? The word of God. And here's what Paul says, that's what's going on in Corinth. And I think that goes on here. And I, you know, like I said, I count it a privilege. I am, and if you've been here, you know, I'm dedicated to go verse by verse. I'm dedicated. I don't want to teach necessarily about the Bible, although we're going to do some of that today. I don't want to teach about the Bible, and I don't even want to teach from the Bible. I want to teach the Bible to people. And that's, a, listen, that's an important thing. And we're losing that in our generation. There's less and less of that going on. There was one guy, it's funny, one of the commentators I read, it's like he hits this verse and he had an entire chapter on this verse and I thought, oh, this is gonna be good. Oh, it wasn't. <laughs> he spent the whole chapter, listen, he spent the whole chapter talking about preaching the word, 
but never developed that idea of preaching the word. He just talked about it, and I went, oh, man. I was expecting, listen, I was expecting some good stuff, and I, I felt let down. I felt ripped off. I was going to write him a little note. You ripped me off. Like 15 pages. I just like, pfft, you know, you ripped me off. But listen, and sometimes people get caught up with that. There are people who will tell you all about the word of God, but never tell you the word of God. There are people who will use the word of God for a springboard to, to do their own thing. Paul didn't do that, and we're not gonna do that. So when we think about the word of God, I wanna talk a little bit, and this is kind of this is kind of what some of what we're gonna go through in the inductive Bible study. So this is kind of a, a setup for that. And it's interesting that this fell at the same time. But I think it's important, listen, as we read in Thessalonians, I think it's important to stop and realize why should I trust this thing? Why should I trust this book? You're telling me it's the word of God, but how can I know that this is the word of God? Oh, there's an element of faith, definitely, but it's not blind faith, and I think this is an important thing. I think you and I need to know why, if somebody asks you, why do you think that's the word of God? Are you gonna tell them just cause? Because that's what we tell our kids sometimes, huh? Why? Just cause, I'm bigger than you, that's why. But listen, are you, do, you have a, do you have a reasonable answer? Peter tells us, right? Always be ready to give a reasonable answer for the hope that you have with meekness and humility. So when somebody asks you, why are you saying that is the word of God? Because somebody, well, because on the, on the title it says Holy Bible. That's why. Do you understand how unique this quote book is? I want to talk about that a little bit today because I think it's important. Do you understand this is not a book? I think most of us know, right? It's 66 books. It's 66 different books all in one binding for us. And here's what blows my mind. You have 66 books here, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and we have 66 books, and they have one major theme all the way through, no matter which book you're reading. And what is that theme? The redemption of man pointing to the Messiah all the way through. Go to the library tomorrow. Go to the library and pull 66 books on the same subject off the shelf and see if they all agree with each other. This is amazing. You have 66 books. They don't contradict each other. They all agree with each other. So then some of us may say, well, yeah, but they, you know, they probably had a collaboration of, uh, uh, and they all got together and they decided, let's write this thing and let's have this happen. Oh, there's 66 books. You know how many authors wrote the Bible? 40. 40 different authors. That's a lot of people involved, right? Hey, if 40 of us got together, are we all gonna do the right thing and, and say it together? And No, you have 40 different authors coming together writing 66 books and they don't contradict each other. They don't negate one another. They flow all the way through from beginning to end. Don't tell me God's not involved in this thing we call a Bible. Don't tell me his hand is not all over it. Now, some say, how did God do that? How did God get 40 different people, and I believe they were mostly men, how did he get them all to write what he wanted? Well, you know, technically what happened is when he was ready for them to write, he turned them into printers, and he just, no, that's not what happened. How, did, how does that work? Here's, I'm gonna be really honest with you. I don't know. It's a mystery. 
How is Jesus fully God and fully man? I don't know, but he is. How is this written by men, but written by God? I don't know, but it is, because as I said, no other writing in history even comes close to this. Not only do you have 40 different authors, this might help, they couldn't have collaborated, why? Because it was written over a period of 1,500 years. Oh, that kind of makes it difficult. You got guys writing over a period of 1,500 years and they're agreeing with each other and actually they're building on one another, not looking necessarily at each other's work, but they're building on one another. Now, check this out. Get a science book from the year 2000 and get a science book from 2021. See if they agree. That's only 21 years. I'm thinking when I went to school, when I went to school, they taught that the world was, you know, a few thousand years old, maybe a million years old. Now what do they say? Millions of years. I didn't go to school like 10 million years ago, right? They say millions of years, so look how things change. But the Bible's always the same. So you have 40 different authors writing over a period of 1,500 years. Now here's why I think it gets interesting. They wrote on three different continents. It wasn't like they were all hanging out together. They wrote on three different continents in three different languages. Oh, that kind of complicates things, doesn't it? Yet they all agree. They go through, they agree. I think that's pretty miraculous. That's obviously the hand of God. Oh, it gets a little bit better. The authors, there were kings, there were physicians, a doctor wrote part of it. There were prophets. There were farmers. There was a fig picker. There's a fisherman, a couple of fishermen. And they all, how did, how, how did that come together? Oh, and they wrote about history, science, poetry, prophecy. They have all of these different subjects, yet it all works. Does that get you a little bit excited about this thing we call our Bible? Gets me excited. I just start thinking about that, and I love to meditate on that. Every once in a while, I love to just sit and hold my Bible and just meditate on, man, this is the Word of God. When I first got saved, we had a, a paperback Bible. Somebody bought us a paperback. When Gaynelle and I, she got saved before me, and then and someone got a Bible. We didn't have a Bible in our house. I remember the person who led her to the Lord went, you don't have a Bible in the house? What are you guys, heathens? Yeah, pretty much. You know, no, we don't have a Bible in our house. It's like, a, why would we, right? We're not believers. So we had this one, and, and it was a, you know, it was a, it was a paraphrased uh, version of the Bible. So I remember somebody said, you know, it's time for you guys, because I would ask questions. I was a question asker after I got saved. And they go, it's time for you to get a big boy's Bible. I remember the first Bible I got. I remember opening it, and it was a, you know, bonded leather or something. I remember opening it and that smell. And you see, for me, that smell is the smell of salvation. I just, sometimes I, you'll catch me in a bookstore, I just go smell the Bibles. I just go, oh, yes, yes, yes. Because the word of God was so sweet. Before I got saved, Gaynella and I tried to read, she came to me 
And you know, she was that first Peter woman, if you know the passage in first Peter, where he says you can win them over without a word, by your actions, by your conduct. That was Gainel. And at one time she says, Would, could we just read the Bible together, please? Could we just read the Bible together? I go, sure, let's go for it. I started mocking it. I started mocking it like from Abel to, you know, I'm just like making fun of it. I'm saying, look at this is stupid, this is wrong, this is, and why was I doing that? Well, I wasn't a believer. I didn't have the spirit. And I mocked it, and we got to Abraham, and, and I said some pretty gross things, and I'm not gonna share them with you guys because I'm your pastor, but I said some pretty gross things about Abraham, and I just remember she closed the Bible and said, I don't wanna read the Bible with you anymore because I was that bad. Then I got saved and everything changed and it came alive. Why? Because it's the word of God. So we have that word written by those different individuals. They're all coming together. Don't tell me it's not a work and a miracle of a work. So, okay, Pat, you tell me that, but how can I know I can trust it? How can I trust? I mean, I, I get that stuff but what about, what about this thing we have written here? What about this one? Well, listen, I believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible, and it's the word of God. And I know oftentimes we say the original manuscripts, and, and I kind of get what we're doing. But do you know that as, as recent as 1979, early 80s, I know some of you think that's a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. But as recent as then, they had to have a conference and some of you may know about it, was called the Chicago Conference on Inerrancy. And 200 pastors got together to write a paper. And this is in the late 70s, 80s. They had to write a paper, a document saying, this is the word of God, and it's infallible, and it's inerrant. The Chicago Doctrine on Inerrancy. Check it out. Read it. It's a good read. But listen, listen, they came together and they had to decide that. How could they be so sure? How can we be sure that this is an accurate writing and a good writing? I'm gonna give you some statistics. I love these. I, I think these are out of uh, Josh McDowell, now his son, Sean McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But listen to these because I think this is important. Plato, most of us, have, you've heard of Plato, right? Not your heads, act like you have. Right, Plato lived in, a, in you know, 400, 300 BC era. He lived at that time. So he's living at that time, speaking and writing. They don't have any of his original manuscripts like we don't have any original manuscripts of the New Testament. So the closest manuscript to the time he was writing and living, living was found in 900 AD. That's a span of 11, 1200 years from the time he did something and said it or wrote it to the time they have a manuscript they found. 1,200 year gap. Oh, and you know how many they found in 900 AD? Oh, they found a ton, seven. Seven different manuscripts. Have you ever heard anybody question when somebody quotes Plato? Has anybody ever said, mm, I'm not so sure he said that. I'm not so sure that's that. You know, that's just Plato. You know, it's just written. How do you know that's the people? I've never heard anybody question that. Everybody goes, yep, yeah, that's what Plato said. How about, we got a couple more here. How about, uh, how about Aristotle? Another, another guy, right? Kind of a contemporary. Lived a little bit later. His closest writing, he was in the 300 BC era. Aristotle, uh, you know, wrote, said things, had philosophy. 
his manuscript that they found was 1100 AD, 1400 years between the time he said it or wrote it to the first manuscript they found, 1400 years. Oh, you know how many of those they found? Oh, they got a bunch, 49. Herodotus, another, these are guys that all did philosophy. He was about the same time. They found one 900 AD, so another 12, 1300 years. They found eight of his. Now again, do some research. Nobody ever questions these guys' writings. Nobody questions Plato's writings. Nobody questions Aristotle. Nobody questions those guys. And they had what? Mega gaps, right? Millennium and seven, eight, 49. That's not a lot of, hey, we can put them all together. Now the New Testament. The New Testament was written between 40 and 100 AD of when the original writings were. The closest manuscript they've ever found, because we don't have the original writings, the closest manuscript they ever found was 125. We have a gap of 25 years. Not 1,200, not 1,400, 25 years. You know how many manuscripts they found? 5,500 manuscripts. That's the evidence we have. When people tell me, I don't know if I can trust that Bible, I will tell them, then you are not being honest and genuine about how you're treating literature. If you're gonna treat Plato, Aristotle, Herodotus, you're gonna treat them this way, then you gotta treat the Bible, you gotta put it in the same camp. 5,500 manuscripts that they found that, that we have that, that are portions or all of, the, all of the New Testament. Now, it gets even a little bit better. By the year 300, do you know how many more they found? 18,800. We have 24,000 manuscripts within the first 300 years of the Bible. Should we doubt, saints? Come on. They don't do that with any other literature. I mean, this is, to me, it's mind-boggling. And people go, well, but it's ancient. Well, it is ancient. I agree with that. But we have evidence. We have manuscripts. And we can, we can look at those, compare those. That's where we get our translations from. And then, listen, then this gets better. I, I think this is one of the greatest. Early church fathers, are you guys familiar? Like Google early church fathers, find these guys. They're, there's a group of guys, you know, that are, that are pretty well known that uh, were part of a, 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 you know, quote, a team, but they weren't all together. You have Clement of Rome, you have Ignatius of Antioch, you have Polycarp, a lot of us have heard about Polycarp, he was martyred. You have Irenaeus of Lyons, you have Clement of Alexandria, you have Athanasius of Alexandria, you have Tertullian, you've heard some of those names, I'm sure, as you studied. Here's the thing, if we threw away all of those 24,000 documents, if we just threw them away, do you know we could get the entire New Testament from the writings of those guys, quoting it, writing it down? And they were, listen, they lived around those times. All of these guys lived between 100 and, and 300 uh, AD. So listen, they're like, we could get the entire New Testament. That should blow your mind. So listen, here's what I think. I think I can trust this thing. 
I think I, I think I have what God wants me to have. Again, I understand there, there's an element of faith. I have to trust that God got his word through those men because he worked through their personality, he worked through their circumstance, he worked through everything and got exactly what he wanted. Once again, they didn't, come, they didn't become robotic as they wrote it. God used them in their circumstances like we're reading here. He used Paul writing Thessalonians, but you have all of that. So then people will say, well, how did we come with the Bible that we have today? You have 39 books in the Old Testament, you have 27 books in the New Testament. The 39 books in the Old Testament, we get those from, basically from Jesus quoting the Old Testament. He quotes every book in the Old Testament, at least someplace. So if Jesus recognized those as scripture, I think we should. So it's not, listen, most people, all, most Bible critics don't get real hardcore on what belongs. There's a few, and we'll talk about it in a minute, that kind of get a little bit jaded on what belongs in the Old Testament. The big argument in the Old Testament is liberals say, there is no way the people who are on there, for instance, I'll take Daniel. There's no way that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel because Daniel prophesies about things 300 years in the future. And they're exactly what he says. Here's what people say, there's no way someone could do. The man could never do that. And here's what I say, amen. Because a man didn't do that, God did. God used him. So there's, there's where the argument, but most people accept the Old Testament. The New Testament, there's some arguing about, and a little bit of bickering about, that to me kind of is silly with the critics. I believe, listen, I believe if we do the study and look at all those documents, I think we're close to what we get. But people say, how did they come up with what belongs in the Bible? That's called canonization. How did they, who decided what was going to be in there? What guy? I always say this, God decided what was going to be in there. There was a group of men he used to codify that, to bring that together, but it doesn't mean they decided. They used certain criteria, and they would bring this criteria together, and you know, today, I have people come to me today, and they go, how come you never quote the book, The Gospel of Thomas? Well, because it's not the Gospel of Thomas. Do you know that Thomas did not write the Gospel of Thomas? As a matter of fact, the Gospel of Thomas was written around 500 AD. Thomas had been long gone by then, and I don't think the guy channeled him. So that's a Bisbee quote for people from Bisbee will understand that. So listen, the Gospel of Thomas wasn't written by him. Why would I believe somebody that's going to lie about who they are, and you say, well, why would someone say it's the Gospel of Thomas? Let me put it to you this way. If you're gonna write something and you really want someone to believe it, you're gonna use your name? The Gospel of Pat. Oh, I don't care about Pat. Oh, but the Gospel of Thomas? Thomas was there. I could sell this. I might even get on the bestseller list. So they would use those names. You got the Gospel of Thomas. You got the Gospel of Judas. I'm thinking that's totally weird how anybody could come up with that. You got the Gospel of Mary. They go on and on. All of those, listen, all of those are fraud about who they say. So having said that, and I kind of got ahead, those are called pseudo-epigrapha books, meaning they have the author that they claim wrote it didn't write it. So pseudepigrapha, nobody, nobody, well, most people don't give them any kind of time. On the internet today, everybody gives anything any kind of time, but most people don't. And then you have some apocryphal writings that some include in, in the Old Testament, most do not. And, and listen, like the Maccabees. Most of us have heard about the Maccabees, huh? And people go, how come the Catholic Bible has the Maccabees and you don't? 
Well, because here's the main reason. The two books of Maccabees, they're pretty good history, or history, history. Well, it is his story, but they're pretty good history. But here's the problem. They got some glaring mistakes in them, errors that whoever wrote them made. Therefore, that can't be from the hand of God. God doesn't make mistakes. So therefore, that's why they're rejected. So what are some of the criteria? Let me, let me read some of this criteria for something being included in the Bible that, for the canon. And a lot of this came from, from an author. I can't, remember, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was his, his, he's, a, he's a scholar from, I think, the 1800s, late 1800s. His name's, last name's Lightfoot, not Gordon, but Lightfoot, because I know I said it last service to some people. Gordon Lightfoot wrote a book. So this is, his last name's Lightfoot, and he wrote a whole, there's a whole book about the canonization, but this is some of the criteria that he came up with. So yes, a group of men got together and said, we need to figure out what belongs and what doesn't belong. Let's kind of finalize this thing. And as they came together, here's the criteria they used for the New Testament. It says, number one, is it authoritative? Does it have an authoritative tone about it? And therefore proving that God is writing it and God is giving it. The next one would be, is it prophetic? Not prophetic in the sense of predicting something, but prophetic in a sense, does this sound like the word of God? Is it gonna contradict in any way? Because if you read those other gospels I mentioned, they're contradicting everything. And so you can't have that. So you have that prophetic thing. The third thing, and I think this is one of the most important, is it authentic? In other words, did John write the book of John? Did Mark write the book of Mark? Etc. So you have that. So, so is it authentic? And here's what they said. If there's any doubt, throw it out. And then the next one I think is important for us. Is it dynamic? Is it, as you read it, is it life-changing as you read it as a believer? Listen, an unbeliever can read the same, you know, unbeliever can read this and it's not life-changing. So as a believer, are you reading it and going, yes. That's changing. And then the last criteria was, and I think this is one of the most important, because I think it was 400, I'm not sure when the council that got together that, that recognized this. I, I, I don't quite remember, and I didn't write that down, when they got together. But it was, it was a few hundred years down the road. And here's the last criteria. Was it received, collected, read, and used by the people of God? In other words, by Polycarp, Athanasia, Tertullian, those guys. So that, that's, how, that's how they came up. So listen carefully. It wasn't a group of guys going, well, I think this goes. Let's throw this one out because I don't like it. As a matter of fact, along the years, some people tried to remove some of the books. I don't know if you know this. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he hated the book of James. He despised the book of James. He would translate Bibles into German he would handwrite them. He would put the book of James behind the book of Revelation, hoping no one would ever read it. <laughs> so listen, that kind of stuff would go on over the years, but he, he didn't, he knew better than to take it out, and then he used to call it the epistle of straw. Now you gotta understand where Martin Luther was coming from, why he would feel that way because of what had happened to him earlier in his life with the religious system. But that's just kind of giving you some ideas. So we have that now. Here's what some people say, and I've had people ask me this often, Pat, 
what about the book of Enoch? And people will ask that, and I go, the book of Enoch? What are you talking about? You know, Enoch. You know, Jude quotes the book of Enoch in Jude chapter, or chapter, in Jude verse 14. They go, he quotes the book of Enoch. And I go, really? My Bible doesn't say that. Here's what my Bible says. Jude verse 14 says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, Adam prophesied about these men, saying, and talking about the destruction they're gonna face. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, the book of Enoch says this about these men. He says, Enoch says that. So here's my conclusion. He's not quoting the book of Enoch. He's quoting Enoch. And people go, but how did he know what Enoch said? Not a big deal to me. I mean, I think people like get all caught up in things. I think God revealed it to him. And maybe even it was a teaching that went around, but he's not quoting the book of Enoch. And because the book of Enoch is bogus. Number one, first and foremost, the book of Enoch was not written by Enoch. That should give us a clue, right? Right there. Here's what I think. If someone's gonna lie to you about the authorship, what else are they gonna lie to you about? So, kind of keep that, because if, if you guys know, you guys know Enoch, you know who he is? Right? Enoch's the guy who was the seventh from Adam, and he went for a walk one day, and then just walked right into heaven. He never came home. Mrs. Enoch, where's Enoch? I don't know, he went to heaven. What do you mean he went to heaven? He went out for bread. <laughs> he never came home. I mean, I, every time I read that, I think, I, a lot of people get caught up with him. I get caught up with Mrs. Enoch. I'm thinking, man, that would be weird. Where's your husband? I don't know, man. I put him on every milk carton we have. Have you seen, have you seen this person because he's gone? But he just disappeared. When would have he written the book of Enoch? So anyway, so back to this, all right? So we have all of that. So I believe you and I can definitely, but by faith, Understand, this is the word of God. There's plenty of evidence. I remember when I was in Bible college, instructor said this that I think is extremely important. He says, God will give us enough evidence to confirm faith, but never so much to negate it, because we're supposed to walk by faith. We've got a lot of evidence. Is it 100%? No. Why? Because we have to walk by faith. And by faith, listen, it's not blind faith, it's informed faith that we can do that. And so you and I need to understand, we have the word of God. We have what God wants us. Hey, why do we have so many translations now? Because people, listen, people think a little bit different. Someone even after service came up, asked me about a translation I'd never heard of. And uh, hey, should I read that? And I go, how old are you in the Lord? Are you, are you strong enough in the Lord to discern whether it's right or wrong and compare it with some good solid translations? But listen, why do we have those? And here's what I found. All of the translations, there's variations, yes, but there's not variations that are gonna change doctrine or salvation or God's plan of redemption. And we need to know that. Now, one more thing. Well, we're not closing yet. But, I don't know how many of us know, you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? In the, in the late 40s, there's a kid herding sheep, throws a rock in a cave, 
breaks the jar, goes in, and there's a copy of the book of Isaiah, amongst others. They bring out this copy of the book of Isaiah written centuries before that, I think a millennium before that, and they get the book of Isaiah, and guess what? It almost word for word matches what we have today. Come on. We have plenty of evidence. And then, to me, that and archaeology. Here's what people will say. Are you sure you can trust the Bible? Because I've heard there's some mistakes. Like they didn't, they didn't quite get the kings and, and they didn't get these rulers right and they say one guy's ruling and we don't have any evidence of that, any other writings in the world, so maybe the Bible's wrong. Let me give you an example because here's something I've found over the years and you can study this. Every time there's a discovery in the Middle East on some biblical thing, it every time substantiates the Bible. Not once have they found something that made the Bible wrong, and everybody like, yes, I knew there was a mistake. A good one is Pontius Pilate. I don't know if a lot of us know that. For years, they said Pontius Pilate didn't exist. There were no other writings about Pontius Pilate. There was no other evidence about his existence. And here's what would happen as Christians, they would go, oh man, maybe, maybe, maybe it's wrong. And then, or they would just say, we don't talk about that. Do you ever do that? We don't talk about that in this house. (laughs) And then someone's digging in the Middle East. And this pickaxe hits a big old honking stone. So they pull the stone out of the ground. Guess what was written on that stone? Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. Oh, the Bible was right all along. How amazing. They have, when we go to Israel, they have a, they have a replica of it. At the, they don't have the actual stone out, but they have a replica of it in Caesarea. Yet you see this, and it's just like, yes. You see, archaeology always proves the Bible, never disproves it. Now, one more thing. I said that, but this is really one more thing. All of that should say yes. Most of you are, I know, on board, but this is stuff we need to know because I think, I think according to Peter, I need to be be ready to give an answer for anyone who asks me. I need to have a reasonable answer for those who ask me for the hope that's within me. And I need to give them that answer with meekness and, and, and kindness. But I need to be able, when people tell me you can trust the Bible, here's what I tell them. Can you trust any literature? Seriously, let's talk about, how do I know Abraham Lincoln was president? Well, it's written down. How do I know that's true? I wasn't there. I don't know that's true. Now, I'm being sarcastic. And, and do it, but you get my point. So listen, here's one more thing, this one more thing. That wasn't the one more thing. That was a <laughs> parenthetical before the one more thing. Hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Most of us agree with that, right? Hundreds. And Jesus fulfilled every one of them. There's a guy, his name's Peter Stoner. Bisbee, don't take that the wrong way. There's a guy, his name's Peter Stoner, and he's a mathematician. And so he's, as a mathematician, I don't understand this. I'm an artist, I'm not a mathematician. So, but he worked out the laws of probability on eight of those prophecies. He took eight prophecies that Jesus had no way at all to fulfill on his own, like where he would be born, where he would die, those kind of things, right? He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't make those happen. So he took those eight prophecies and extrapolated out 
the, the probability of just one man fulfilling those eight prophecies. The probability of that happening with one person is one to 10 to the 17th power. So that's a 10 with 17 zeros next to it. I don't know what you call that, a bagazillion, right? Do you understand? What does that mean? It's pretty impossible. And then I like, he did this thing because he's a mathematician. So some of us can't, like we can't visualize, you know, 10 with 17 zeros behind it. We can't do it. So he, he explained it this way. It's like taking silver dollars and filling the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Texas is pretty big, right? Two feet deep with silver dollars and marking one of them with a mark. And then taking it and shaking it and then one person either gets dropped in or lowered by a, some kind of way. That one person picks, blindfolded, picks out that silver dollar. Ain't gonna happen, right? Some of you are going, it could. <laughs> Can we trust this? Shouldn't we receive this as it is? Exactly what they what he said, as it is, the word of God. And then, shouldn't this change our lives? J.I. Packer, one of my heroes, the book Knowing God that you have to read to get into heaven. Just letting you know ahead of time. I don't want you getting, to, getting close and then they're going, you read Knowing God? Nope. <laughs> Go read it. In Knowing God, here's what J.I. Packer says. He says, you can only know someone to the degree that they will reveal themselves, which is true, right? They have physical relationships. You can only know that person as much as they open up to you and, and share with you. you know, I've, I've been married a long time. I've been married over 50 years, and I'm still getting to know my wife, although she does open up. But, you know, I said it the other night and got in major trouble because I said it wrong. So she does, she's not hiding from me, but she opens up. But I, there's still things I'm finding out about her. And we were together longer than that. So we've been, we've been together a long time. But you can only know a person as much as they're gonna reveal. God has completely revealed himself right here. He's chosen to do that. Why did he write it down? Because that's the most effective form of communication. It's not gonna change. Have you noticed if you read through your Bible every year, it doesn't change? Like you read and go, wow, Genesis is completely different this time. <laughs> oh, I got so much more. Okay, we'll quit. One more thing. One more thing. How about, how about this? One of the guides we use in Israel, no one else got this because you guys came late, so you kind of slept in. So one of the guides we use in Israel, Ronnie, I love Ronnie Simone. He's not a believer, and he's, you know, he's a Jew. He's, he's kind of what I would call like a, a practicing Jew. He's not orthodox. He's not hardcore. But something about Ronnie that always disturbs me, Ronnie, Ronnie also is a writer, and he wrote some of the, a book of history of some of the kings, began to dive in and study some of the kings of Israel. And he says, well, you know, the Bible left out some material, and I don't think it's right that the Bible left it out. What do you think, Pat? And I go, well, Ronnie, let me tell you what I think. Glad you asked. This is not a history book. It's not a science book. It's not a poetry book. What is it? It's a book to reveal God 
And the main theme is the redemption of man. And the things that it leaves out historically are because that's not pertinent to the redemption of man. Are you with me? Are you tracking? Like, I think God doesn't give us enough information on creation. This is my personal opinion. A chapter, one chapter. And basically, it's one word. God spoke, and it was. That's like not enough information. It's not a book on creation. It's a book on redemption of man. Don't ever forget that. And it's a revelation of God. So, is this book going to effectively change your life? If you're open for it, it will. If you close yourself off, it won't. We're going to find that out next week. So you have to come back next week because we were supposed to do eight verses. <laughs> so come back and we'll finish this. Let's stand up and pray. Father, we do stand here today rejoicing in our God. How blessed we are that you have chosen and your wisdom to give us this thing we call a Bible, this book, 66 books, bound together in one, one binding. And God, if we are men and women led by the Spirit, reading this, we can better understand you. We can fall more in love with you. We can better understand ourselves and our relationship will grow. So I pray, God, I pray that all of us would be, would be, quote, students of your word, and we wouldn't let people come in and throw doubt and throw kind of, quote, water on, on what we believe, but we would know and understand, hey, I believe God wrote this, why? And now we have some evidence. It's not just, this is what I think, this is what my heart feels, this is what, what I, you know, I get excited about. This is what's reality. And I thank you over the generations that you've preserved your word, over the generations you preserve the evidence so that we can use it, we can rely on it, and we can count on it. But God, all of it boils down to yielding to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, continue to make your word alive to us. And I'm gonna ask you to stay in an attitude of prayer for a couple more moments. And if you are here today and, and you're not born again, a lot of this, like when I was citing things, a lot of it, you're sitting there thinking, well, that doesn't really matter. It's because you're not born again. It's because the Spirit understands spiritual things. Just like when I mocked the Bible before I was saved, because I didn't have the Spirit making it alive to me. So. All of that can change right now. All you have to do right now is call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you will be saved. Here's how you do that. You come to the place, number one, you admit to God that you're a sinner. He doesn't need to know that. He needs you to know that so that you can come to the place where you're broken over your sin. You ask him to forgive your sin, and then you begin this relationship. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is separation from God. It's suffering the eternal wrath of God. That's truth. That's reality. That's bad news. The good news is Jesus Christ on the cross took that punishment, what you deserve, took the wages you deserve, took it upon himself, 
And now he holds out to you here today this receipt that says, your debt is paid in full. I've taken care of it. All you have to do is accept it. Say yes to Jesus right now. I'll lead you in a prayer. You can say this prayer with me out loud. You can say it silently. Volume doesn't matter, but your heart does. You have to be sincere. Hey, if you're backslidden, come home. Man, come back to Jesus. My heart goes out to you. If you're backslidden, you're miserable. And I want you to get unmiserable. So come, come home. Open your heart up to him. Say this prayer with us. If you're online and you're watching at home, say this prayer with us. And you don't have to be in this building. Just repeat these words. Jesus, today I confess that I am a sinner. I'm sorry that I sinned against you. And today I'm asking you to forgive me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for your forgiveness. And right now I'm asking you to come into my heart and change me. I'm asking you to come into my life and guide me. Today, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior.